Is NPR's future all used up? And what happens when BuzzFeed loses its buzz? This is episode 41 of Media Unplugged, the podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom Asaka and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I'm Mark Ramsey. And I'm Tom Asaka. Tom, is NPR's future all used up? I don't know. Tell us. <laughs> well, by the way, I hope you caught the reference to Orson Welles' Touch of Evil in that title. I'm sure you did. No, not even a it's clue. so obvious. No. <laughs> <laughs> this is from an article in Slate called The Fight for the Future of NPR. A slow-moving bureaucracy, an antiquated business model, a horde of upstart competitors. Sounds like the new season of Game of Thrones. <laughs> Can national public radio survive? It's that kind of title, Tom, that makes the clicks roll in. This piece written by a guy named Leon uh, Nafak uh, in Slate, who evidently believes the sun rises and sets on podcasts, yep. from what I can tell. Here's the nub of it. He says, what is the value of NPR in an age when audiences for terrestrial radio are in long-term decline? You know, I have to begin by taking challenge with that. As you know, I know something about this area. And um, the reality of the situation is that, you know, still almost everybody listens at one point or another to the radio in some fashion. What's happened is that people are spending less time than ever listening to the radio. Because right. obviously there's more stuff to do, more choices. Uh, the more choices we have, the more we have to split our time between those choices. So I, I tend not to like, you know, unambiguously declarative statements like, uh, when audiences for terrestrial radio are in long-term decline, because that suggests something that's not quite true. Number one, the tumult, he says, was touched off in late March when an NPR executive announced that the network's own digital offerings, most importantly its marquee iPhone app NPR One, were not to be promoted during shows airing on terrestrial radio. The ban was widely viewed as proof that NPR is less interested in reaching young listeners than in placating the managers of local member stations who pay handsome fees to broadcast NPR shows and tend to react with suspicion when NPR promotes its efforts to distribute those shows digitally. Mm. I don't know, Tom, are, <laughs> are the member stations crazy um, for wanting to secure their investment? Yeah, I know. It's This is a catch-22, as, as all of these dilemmas in the marketplace are. Listen, first of all, I love the through line as I emailed you and told you of these two topics, the old mm -hmm. NPR and the new BuzzFeed, both struggling to surf the new media waves, right? Because, <laughs> because that, that's what happens in a marketplace of abundance with extremely low barriers to entry. The waves kick mm -hmm. up and everyone paddles out there. So right. if NPR does have a problem, what's at the heart of the problem? Because look, I've made similar cases to NPR executives as well as you have. And I'll tell you what it is. In a word, it's success. They're comfortable or even constrained by what the author of the article refers to as their antiquated economic arrangements. See, Jerry mm -hmm. Seinfeld said it this way. He said, success is the enemy of comedy. <laughs> right? What he was saying is success. That's why he hasn't had a show since Seinfeld. Well, yeah, he was saying success is the enemy of innovation. Mm -hmm. And that's what's going on. That Mark, their core audience doesn't want them to innovate. Well, that I was going to make exactly that point, Tom. I mean, what people need to recognize is that NPR is essentially funded by people. Uh, viewers, listeners, and these viewers and listeners give money to their local stations, not for the innovations that haven't arrived yet, 
but for exactly what they hear and see on local radio and television. Right. In other words, they're paying for what they get, not for what they don't get. Right. So the idea that they should be given more of what they are paying for is not crazy in the least under the current business model. <laughs> that's, the, that's, the, that's the issue. It's how long is the current business model going to sustain itself? Because look, I'm sure that McDonald's has all kinds of appealing offerings that we never see. They never see the light of day. And it's, and it's not because the people up there don't believe that they can release it and that there are people that want it. It's because the franchise owners don't want it. They mm-hmm. don't believe the offerings are going to appeal to their core audience. You know, Maybe it's too pricey or too healthy, whatever. So what do they do? They, to your point, they give their audience more of what they want. Like an all-day breakfast, all breakfast day. menu, right? Which is, by the way, they're riding high financially because of they that. They are indeed, right? Yeah, yeah. By the way, would you call that innovation or like the simplest dumb idea in the world? <laughs> <laughs> dumb as a fox, obviously, right? That's right, exactly. Yeah. So listen, that's why all of these niche offerings are popping up, right? Because there, you have groups that are going to appeal to their core audience. There are other people that want something else. The, this somebody launches something that this other group's sense, you know, sensibilities are, are tuned to, and they carve off a little piece, and and and, and so the question is, what does that mean long term for these organizations who are having their audiences sliced away little by little? Well, first of all, I think it needs to be recognized that just because other competitors are carving off a little piece doesn't mean NPR needs to chase the little pieces. They have a larger hole that they need to be concerned about as well. And I think they're smarter than most of these guys give them credit for. In fact, when I read this uh, the, 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 about the controversy over their <clears throat> decision not to promote NPR One on the radio, I uh, wrote my own piece, which um, has been shared so far almost 4,000 times on Facebook. And here's what I said in it, because I think there was a premise in here that was wrong. The premise here is that pushing, promoting, marketing NPR's on-demand assets is in some way critical to their success as long as that pushing, promoting, and marketing happens in the presence of the same content on your local air. But this puts the content before the audience, and that's a mistake. In other words, there are more audiences for this content out there than the one listening on the radio. The idea that you know we have this universe and we can only carve off pieces of it and can never grow is, I think, a myth. And I got this originally from Dave Ramsey, the financial uh, right. uh, advisor with the radio show. And he said to me at one point, he said, you know, we had the radio show. We did all this digital stuff. Every time we put a new distribution channel out there for some new element of content, our biggest concern is that we're going to cannibalize the mothership, that we're going to eat into the existing audience, the existing content. In fact, what happens is every time we do it, we grow our audience. So, I mean, that's how this stuff needs to be looked at. So the fact that NPR is preserving the status quo on the one hand, while at the same time doing genuine experiments, and if you look in the top 100 at iTunes, you'll see them all there, genuine experiments, some of which, like their new podcast Embedded, is ranked number one on iTunes. No, I'm with you. These two things are not mutually exclusive. No, I- you can do both of these things. You can protect the status quo, and you can grow at the edges a new audience all at the same time. Yeah, you can. But it's important, I think, as well, to, to look at the you know, the core offering and, and see if there's a way that you can make that more appealing to your, to your audience over time as well. I mean, 
there was a quote in there that the that the CEO of NPR, uh, I think he was somewhat dismissive of some of these other, other of these other podcasts out there. He says, "Look, your storytelling is great. It's fine. It's fun. It's interesting. It's charming." But we're covering Syria. We're covering Ebola. So mm-hmm. that becomes a problem. I mean, when you see what you do, and, and, and listen, they see their reporting as a serious public good and not, heaven forbid, a product in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And I think that because of that, they don't recognize that people's desires are going to drive their choices in consumption of news. You know, yes, we have a desire to know what's happening and we want it from a trusted source, but we have a desire for entertainment for social currency, for connection. So I don't have a problem with organizations starting with their why and use that as their guiding force. But mm-hmm. I'm telling you, it's how you do it that's going to draw in people and engage them enough so that they keep coming back and bring their friends. And if they want a younger demographic, a younger audience to be drawn in, then they're going to have to understand how to appeal to it. Now, look, I'm sure more Americans know about Alexander Hamilton now because of the Broadway music. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's right. I mean, but that that goes to another point, which is it doesn't necessarily mean you need to execute that appeal to that other audience on the same platform as your core product, right? I mean, the fact that more people know more about Hamilton today is not because of a school book, not because of any book. It's because of a Broadway musical. Right. I mean, that tells me, I mean, for example, there's a quote in here in the article, NPR news reporters usually can't get that personal in part because as Gimlet's Adam Davidson puts it, they are in the impossible position of having to simultaneously appeal to 80 year olds in Alabama and 20 year olds in Brooklyn. That is not true. There are very few 20 year olds in Brooklyn (laughs) listening to NPR, number one. There are a lot more 80 year olds in Alabama. And no, by the way, the 80 year olds are giving a lot more money to their local public radio station than the 20 year olds in Brooklyn. But that doesn't mean that on other platforms consumed by younger audiences, NPR can't provide exactly the kind of value proposition you're describing because that is what these people desire. Exactly. You got it. Well, I think that's where these things are headed no matter, you know, I, I, I think the idea that it's either one or the other is in fact the myth. And uh, eventually, uh, I, I think it will, time will show that NPR is closer to that end destination than uh, most of its critics give it, give it credit for, because these critics, by and large, are working for shows even at their greatest success, which are a tiny, tiny fraction of the amount of attention that NPR gets, and they know it. Yeah. Well, listen, you know that as well as I do, they got to keep their eye on, on, the, on the cars and what gets released uh, you know, in, in that platform, that audio platform in the car, because I read USA Today and I read the Wall Street Journal, but do you know when? when it's placed directly in front of me at a hotel when I'm traveling. <laughs> Otherwise, I get it. I get a steady offering of news at my fingertip on my phone. I'm pretty sure that that's the only place USA Today is offered, <laughs> by the way. But as far as the phone, the, here's the other thing to keep in mind, because you're right about news on the phone. To the degree that people are tuning in, all things considered, a morning edition, just for an update on the world, that's completely at risk. Right. But to the degree that they're tuning in for a perspective, a slant on that update on the world, for more in-depth um, uh, coverage and insight on that update for the world, that's something which is very much in NPR's ballpark and one of the specialties that has made them famous for generations. You're exactly right. You are listening to Media Unplugged with Tom Asacker and Mark Ramsey. What happens when BuzzFeed loses its buzz? <laughs> Who would have thunk it, Tom? <laughs> 
This is from New York Magazine. 80 million reasons BuzzFeed had to have its revenue projections for 2016. Cut them in half, Tom. I know. A new, you, know a all, new, you know all the legacy media people that are listening to this episode right now are like clapping. <laughs> There's like applause. Yeah, all right. Well, it's, it is utterly absurd. It's even utterly absurd the way it's dealt with in this article. Let me read a little bit of it to you. A new Financial Times report paints a WTF and fail picture of BuzzFeed's revenue. The company's been forced to cut its 2016 revenue target in half from 500 million itself, many would say not that much, to 250 million after missing its 2015 target by more than 80 million, nearly a third of its target figure. <laughs> according, according to three sources who spoke to uh, Financial Times, the sprawling content engine generated less than 170 million in revenue in 2015 against an internal target of $250 million. Then it goes on to say, that's not entirely unexpected. Uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> and it's less a sign of imminent doom than it is of more realistic expectations. Tom, mm. if, it, if you miss the mark by 50%, that by definition is unexpected. I mean, you can't say that's not unexpected. Well, I would have lost my job if I had ever missed of some course. projection. By. Yeah, look, Mark, the same thing is going on here. This is, uh, this is about abundance, right? I, what is the barrier to entry? to make a list, you know, to do this listicle thing or to, to, yeah. or to, or to throw a video out there of, of uh, what, what did somebody send me yesterday was, was some kids scratching the back of some animal and the animal kept turning around, scratching the back, saying, don't stop, don't stop. So BuzzFeed has to compete for eyeballs from everywhere. And it's going mm -hmm. to get more and more difficult. And advertising prices will continue to fall the more of this stuff gets thrown out on the internet. I mean, you know what I mean? They're not going to go away any anytime soon. I mean, they've got, what, a staff of 700 people? But this is this is the conversation we had last week where we talked about, look at all this scale. Look at the, you know, tw uh, however many 200 YouTube channels with more than a million subscribers exactly. each. What does that mean? What does it mean that BuzzFeed has all this traffic? It can't be monetized. It means they have massive attention, which is of dubious value. Well, now here, right. that goes on to say, according to uh, Financial Times sources, the, uh, the problem is that the company is having trouble scaling its sponsored content operation. Unlike most of its peers, BuzzFeed doesn't sell display ads, the banners and overlays you typically see on news sites. Instead, it makes money by selling so-called native ads, posts, and especially videos, similar in tone and format to BuzzFeed's editorial content, but made at the behest of a given advertiser who has editorial control over the unit. Native has traditionally commanded a lot more money than display, but it's also more resource intensive. It takes too long to do each campaign and you can only do so many, one source told Financial Times. So in other words, the only way to make money is by, you know, creating this heavy lift and you can only create so many heavy lifts. And ultimately, and this is the part that makes me crazy, what the real promise for these advertiser partners is that these videos go viral. So now you've got that added pressure on top of it. So you're not just selling reach now. You're selling virality, yeah. which is a really big ask. Yeah. Look, so the good thing, the thing that they have going for them, and which I think they bet on, is that they experiment relentlessly to stay on top of what makes people click, read, or watch something. Right. That's good news. Right. But what they're starting to discover is something that a lot of legacy media companies already know. And that's how difficult it is to get big brands to spend big money on campaigns because mm -hmm. big brands, Mark, are not relentless experimenters, right? <laughs> they want the study, the data, 
the proof. And all of that time and all of that evidence costs a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And so, so BuzzFeed mm-hmm. thinking, ah, we'll just sit here and create crazy YouTube videos and then I'll call up Budweiser and we'll get them to spend $100,000. Uh-uh, it's not going to work like that. It hasn't worked that point, like that and it's not about to start now. That point is made right in this article. They say an article, an article, you know, because obviously the options, we create a video or we create a, a listicle or something. An article takes at most a writer and an editor to create, but even short videos of the kind that have created enormous audiences for BuzzFeed require several people and a lot of time to produce. At the same time, here's your point. The gulf between what actually travels well online and what brands want to be associated with is wide, (laughs) meaning BuzzFeed has trouble guaranteeing the virality potential advertisers are hoping for. Because you know, Tom, what advertisers really want is to have a really simple left brain message pumped out there and go viral. <laughs> buy Clorox. <laughs> Everyone's watching the buy Clorox video. Yeah. No one's going to watch the buy Clorox video. They have to make it, you know, buzzworthy and that makes it less easy to sell. So isn't that an ultimate irony? To make things viral, you have to make them less appealing to the very sponsors you need to sponsor in order to make the viral engine keep moving. Well, what's happening, Mark, as well as there's evidence now you know, a lot of people jumped on to all of this eyeball stuff early on, but now it's starting to like pan out a little bit where people look at it and say, you know, all these people watched us, these guys drop Mentos into, into Coke. Coke sales didn't go up, you know? So a, mm-hmm. a lot of this, you know, when, when these people come and say, look, I got all these eyeballs, some of these, you know, a lot of these brand managers are now saying, uh, so what? What does that actually mean? How's that enhancing the image of the of the brand. How's that going to draw people in and get them to actually buy something or click something? It's making it more difficult, it, as it should. Mm-hmm. They should play the same tough game every other you know advertising group plays. That's true. The idea that it's just about reach and just about impressions that uh, that that's seeming increasingly dim as a strategic motivator now. Absolutely, <laughs> Tom. It's time for rants and raves. It is. It is indeed. What do you I've have been, this week? I've been nervous about this because I really, and this is the truth, I try really hard to resist ranting on any kind of political media sightings. I really Uh-oh. do. I do. But I'm telling you, I'm starting to lose my mind. I really am. So right now it looks like, you know, the race is going to come down to, you know, Clinton versus Trump. And mm-hmm. in the news this week, you've got Hillary Clinton. She's, courts, she's courting the UFO vote. She tells New York radio station Power 105.1 FM that she wants to open the government's UFO files unless there's some, you know, huge national security thing and she can't get agreement to open them. See, now I didn't know that. That gets her my vote right I know there. it does. But listen how, she, <laughs> listen how she rationalizes, you know, why she wants to do this. She says, quote, there are enough stories out there that I don't think everybody is just sitting in their kitchen making them up. Right. Now, that, that's, a, so that's a sound argument. You got one third of Americans believe extraterrestrials have visited Earth. And certainly, you know, they can't be making that up. And I checked some other percentages and I found that's about the same percentage of Americans who can't find the Pacific Ocean on a world map. And I think it's because all the blueness confuses them or something. All right. So that's her. That's, that's one choice we have. And then we have the Donald. So he was seen courting, and I don't even know, maybe he was courting dead presidents, the dead president vote, because he says that it's pure political 
correctness to replace former President Andrew Jackson with abolitionist Harriet Tubman on the $20 (laughs) bill, right? As, you know, the U.S. Treasury Department plans to do this. Now, to emphasize how he really feels about this, here's what he had to say on NBC's Today Show. He says, quote, Andrew Jackson had a great history. I think it's very rough when you take someone off the bill. What in the hell is going on? Very rough indeed. Poor Andrew and poor, poor us. I can't take it. I swear to you. I'm losing it over here. Oh, man. All right. I have a. Um, I have nothing to add to that other than that. Yeah, what can you possibly add Whoever's going to gonna open the UFO files has my vote. That's all I know. Um, if it brings on another well, like episode, another season. Well, like I said, that's like a third of the, of the population she just picked up. There you go. I don't, and by the way, where is the Pacific Ocean? I need to, I need to be reminded of that. Um, I have a, a, a rave and a couple of observations because now you've t- turned me on to the observation route. Uh-oh. But let me, let me start with the rave. This is from, um, this is from the internet. <laughs> I don't know where it's from. <laughs> um, and uh, the title is Domino's Zero Click Ordering App. Have you heard of this? Zero Click? Zero Click. No. This is amazing. This is, you know, when you ask questions like, why should we pay attention to this trend or that trend? Why should we get into mobile or digital? Why should we pay attention to this app or that app? The answer is right here because the answer has to come back to what's going to drive your business. That's where the answer has to come back to if you are a brand. Domino's does it again, this time with an app that lets you order pizza without really having to do much of anything. Just open the new zero-click mobile app and a 10-second countdown begins. Let it run out, and your pre-saved order is automatically on the way. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Even even the App Store page for the app says this, quote, it's easy, maybe too easy. You've been warned. (laughs) That reminds me of, like, kids picking up the phone and making international calls. I know that was the... I mean, not that I would have done that. That would have been easy had I done that. (laughs) But I think that's amazing. That is a perfect use of technology right there. And as you know, that's something that that uh, Domino's is famous for, is using technology to drive business goals. And this is a, a wonderful example. In fact, there's a video of it. I'll post it on the, this is uh, the not, show this is notes. This not a joke? No, it's true. I've seen the video of it. You open the app, the countdown starts. Ten seconds later, your pizza's being made. So, you know, you forget that you open the app and the guy shows up at the door? Don't open the app accidentally. If you do, you have ten seconds to close it. <laughs> Okay. And hopefully if the guy shows up at your door, you've already, you've got your credit card already in there. So you've already you've paid, already for, paid the, for it. For that's, that's lovely. So I have a couple of observations <laughs> on top of that. Okay. I know that's awesome. The first one, uh, this past week, um, I was at the uh, Social Media Marketing World Conference in, in San Diego, and I had never been there before. It was interesting. It was huge. Tons of people. The event opened with a presentation by Mike Stelzner, who runs the thing. Um, where he talked about a survey of a very large survey of marketers uh, regarding social media and trends. And essentially what he laid out was the idea that uh, Facebook organic Facebook reach was going down. Uh, he showed his own organic Facebook reach and showed how that had been declining. He showed a survey that said, we asked people, marketers, brands, uh, what has happened to your organic Facebook reach over time? He said, the largest single answer was, I don't know. <laughs> That's a good one. And then he said, and what strategically are people doing as a result of the Facebook trends? And the answer was, 
paying more for Facebook ads. They're doubling down on Facebook, more Facebook than ever before, which I found an interesting reaction to not knowing what's going on with your Facebook. Well, that's what you do. When you don't know what you're doing, you just do more of it. Just do more of right. it, yes. Um, and then he talked about uh, Facebook Live, which, of course, you know, the live right. streaming uh, functionality now present on Facebook for the most part, and how he had experimented with it, and it was the interaction, the engagement was awesome, it was great, it was finally, here it is, a way to reach people in an era when Facebook makes it almost impossible for you to reach people at no cost, right? So then he said, he threw it out to the audience, he said, talk to the people around you, ask them what their major problem is and how they can use this information. Next to me were a couple people who worked for, and I won't name exactly what it is, but it was a tourist attraction in the San Francisco Bay Area. And the, the woman said to me, we're trying to figure out, Facebook Live, if that's the thing that's, on, that's in now, how do we use that for our brand? And I said, well, you know, you realize that like right now, it's easy to get traction on Facebook Live. Yes, I realize that. And you realize that this is Facebook's way of, you know, attracting people to use Facebook Live. Yes, we know that. And that when they do that, what's going to happen <laughs> is bigger brands with more resources and more video and more content and more talent are going to flood in, right? Yeah, yeah, no doubt that's true. And you realize when that happens, they're going to be paying a premium for that. And your ability to get traction through Facebook Live is going to go to zero. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I guess that's true. And it, it just as I was listening to all this, and then he went on to say <laughs> how he uh, told a story about Meerkat and, uh, you know, Meerkat, the other live streaming, uh, one of the other live streaming apps, right. that it was the toast of the town at South by Southwest a year ago. Well, that was a year ago, Tom. Since then, Periscope came out, Meerkat diminished, and now Facebook Live, Meerkat's basically, you know, pivoting. Meerkat's over, right? So much can happen so fast with regard to these tools. It's, the, it's like... I, I wanted to, I, I asked like this how, woman, I said- I like how you say pivoting, pivoting is Yeah, over. well, that's the term. I think term. if I lose a relative, if somebody says, what happened to him? I say, he pivoted. He pivoted, he did pivot. Um, that's the term, as you I know. know. But I, I said to this woman, I thought, you know, ultimately, isn't it less about the individual app or platform or tactic you do and more what your overall strategy is and how to drive your business? Uh -huh. I mean, shouldn't you really kind of begin- with what your audience is interested in and how to drive results for your business, whatever those results are, irrespective <laughs> of the fact that there are five sessions here at Social Media Marketing World on how to make a go of Facebook Live. I just thought that was ironic because ultimately Facebook Live is just the latest invitation from Facebook for traction that will eventually lead to no traction. And it will be, as all things are with Facebook, a race to nowhere for everyone but Facebook. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> They're doing something right. Everybody was there trying to figure out how to use it. Exactly right. So that's observation one. My second observation, I guess, is, you know, this is the day after the uh, uh, prince's uh, death was revealed. Mm. And, you know, lots of people are talking and, and writing about prince, and I'm no expert on this, and I'm not going to say anything any better or any more thoroughly than, you know, any more eloquently than anybody else. I guess as, as you look at all the stuff that comes out about this guy and uh, in the tributes to him, I, I was trying to think, what are the lessons, you know, for artists? What are the lessons for brands? What are the lessons for other people, entrepreneurs out there trying to be originals like Prince? And I thought, you know, I, I this guy, I think the lesson is no matter how talented in your field you are, no matter how original in your field you are, you're probably not Prince. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. And I, and I thought, you know, Prince was an original for sure, and he was amazingly talented for sure. He was also incredibly lucky. 
And I, I think there's no entertainment figure who doesn't acknowledge the role of luck in their equation. At some point in career, at the, at, at the right point in his career, he was incredibly lucky. I remember a few years ago, I was talking to um, uh, the actor Vincent D'Onofrio, and I asked him, you know, he was, his claim to fame, his original claim to fame was a very lucky and important pivotal role in the movie Full Metal Jacket, the Stanley Kubrick movie. Right. And I said, do you ever reflect on how fortunate you are to land that role? And he gave me this look and said, <laughs> every single day, I recognize how lucky I was to land that role and what a difference that made in my career. So I guess what I'm saying is anyone who looks at the Prince situation and says, wow, see, if I only express my originality, I'll be like Prince. I think being an original doesn't mean you will be successful. It doesn't mean you'll be rich. And it doesn't mean you'll be famous. But being an original means at least you get to be you. And that's a valuable lesson. No, I agree. I love that. You know, and I think the other thing, Mark, and I don't know why we don't see more of this. Why can't more business people have the attitude that these creatives do, recognizing what luck brought them in their careers? Because most of the mm -hmm. business people I meet, they actually think they did this. <laughs> <laughs> Unless something goes wrong, in which case Somebody they're else sure did they it. didn't. <laughs> That's Media Unplugged for this week. Tom is completely responsible for this episode. <laughs> please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes or on Stitcher. And while you're there, please rate the show. No, I mean it. Please rate the Not show. It one, helps though. folks discover us. <laughs> please rate even this one, I think. Um, you can catch us at SoundCloud, Podcast One, Radio Inc., Media Village, Net News Check, the American Marketing Association, and right on your mobile device where you're listening to us now. You can follow Tom on Twitter at Tom Asacker and Mark at Mark Ramsey Media. Send us your questions and comments using hashtag Media Unplugged. If there's a media topic you want us to cover, forget about it. We have our own <laughs> ideas. You can read the show notes and share the show at our website, MediaUnplugged.net. Special thanks to the amazing, incomparable producer of Media Unplugged, Jeff Schmidt, exciting audio for media. You can find him at jeff-schmidt.com. For Tom Asacker, I'm Mark Ramsey. Thank you for listening.